And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Ussery, and I'm happy to welcome Matteo Ascarapur to the program. He's a former director of sales for a tech company who has shifted to the written word. His writing has appeared in Entrepreneur, The Rumpus, and Medium, among others. Houghton Mifflin Harcourt has recently published his debut novel, Black Buck. Matteo, the book starts off with an author's note, but it's not from you. Yeah, so I, I wanted to write a book that was definitely engaging for readers, but I also wanted to double as a sales manual. And I thought that the best way to do that would be to have my protagonist, Darren, tell this tale from his own perspective, making it part memoir, part self-help book, part sales manual. So the author's note is just kicking it off and letting the reader know that, sure, this book was literally written by Matteo Scarpa, but what they're reading now is somewhat of a metafiction written by Darren Vender. Funnily enough, Stephen, some people miss it and they think that the author's notes from me. Why did you decide to approach it this way? You know, presumably we all learn from novels in one way or another, but to make some of the lessons, not all of the lessons, but some of the lessons very explicit. Yeah, I thought that it would be uh, more interesting for the reader and that it would really drive home my intention of having this novel serve as a means of, of people learning, learning about sales, learning about life, and taking away a few gems that they could use to advance themselves in the lives of the people that they love. So whether it's for advocating a higher salary or literally you know, getting an entry-level sales position or just being able to better communicate on behalf of their community, I wanted it to have that self-help sales manual aspect. And it also stems from the fact that when I got into sales, I was handed a few books, a few sales books, uh, specifically by a man named Jeffrey Gittimer, Little Red Book of Selling and the Sales Bible. And I just loved how no nonsense his tips were, the glossy pages. It just really resonated with me. So I was hoping that the same would happen with my readers. A lot of people, and I'm going to count myself among them, when they hear salesmen, they go, ugh, I don't want to talk mm-hmm. to this person. So what would you suggest for people on the, the receiving end of a sales pitch to think about when they're getting sold to? Well, I would just ask, does it resonate with them? Because I, I truly believe that we are all selling in one form or another. You know, you and I are, are selling each other right now. Or you will be selling me more on your perspective of the book, and, and I'm selling you on my intentions as well as to the listeners. But what I think is most important is being open-minded and asking, does this resonate in my heart, right? Or does it feel more like a trick or someone's trying to get one over me? And I feel as though people are truly in touch with their hearts and their belief systems, they'll be able to smell out BS pretty well. Darren Vender is our protagonist and the, the narrator for the book and the author of that, that author's note at the very beginning of the book. He's an extremely bright young man, valedictorian at one of the finest public high schools in America. But why didn't he pursue college after graduating? For Darren, he thought that going to college, even in a place in the city, would take him away from his mother and that he needed to assume the position as the man of, of the house, especially because his father had died when he was young and he always relied on his mother. But he decided not to go to college because he wanted to make sure that he was there for her in any way possible and that he wouldn't be drawn into a host of other responsibilities or opportunities, which is why he takes a job uh, working at a Starbucks, which is it's not too far from his house. It's not too demanding. But then we see that whole lifestyle thrown into a dizzying change when Rhett Daniels, the CEO of a startup called Someone, comes in and Darren sells him on a new drink. He's showing himself to be kind of selfless, but it also, do you think in some ways, is a a bit of a dodge that he doesn't have to 
try and fail at something if he just stays there with his mother? Most definitely. He's comfortable, whether he can admit it to himself, his girlfriend, Soraya, or his mother. He has never really had to ask himself the existential question of why am I here? Why do I exist? You know, he has his girlfriend, he has his mom, he has his best friends, the people in his neighborhood. He has his job where he has a leadership position and he is managing people who look up to him and believe in him. So he's, he's feeling pretty cushy. But then when Rhett Daniels walks in and presents that question of why are you here, Darren's desire to be more is activated. And then we see him enter the startup world of someone. Let's meet his mother. She works at a chemical plant that manufactures bleach. And she is an attentive mother, but she does work very hard in a plant that, you know, takes a lot out of her. She's hardworking. She really played both roles of father and mother to Darren. And like you said, she's loving. She's attentive. She wants the best for him, which is why she drops little hints here and there, putting out clothes for Darren on his bed or printing out jobs from LinkedIn saying, hey, Darren, it'd be great if you applied for some of these jobs. She constantly is pushing him, again, in some subtle ways and in some overt ways, for him to live into the potential that she and others in his neighborhood believe that he has. And then, you know, he finally does. But we see with his mother, I think she regrets sometimes pushing him because Darren does change into someone who she can't even really recognize anymore. And that's something we see at the very beginning of the book, that Darren is telling the story in hindsight and that he lets you know that bad things are coming. Yeah. It was important for me to have an older Darren be the one who's writing this book so that while the reader is in the plot and focusing on, you know, 22-year-old Darren, they're also being led by this older, hopefully wiser, still, you know, in the grand scheme of things, young, but this older Darren who is saying, I know that things are crazy. I know this story that I'm recounting is wild, but trust me that it's going to be worth it. So that was most definitely intentional. How reliable do you think the elder Darren is as a narrator? Do you think he's being straight and honest with us on everything? That's going to come down to the reader. But from my perspective, I think that he's credible. I think that he's reliable because he is burying his triumphs as well as his tragedies and his flaws and his fumbles in a very open and honest way. But I think it just goes back to the beginning of our conversation. Like, do you feel as though what Darren is selling in terms of his side of his story, do you feel as though it resonates with you in your heart? Or is it just BS? Now, where do he and his mother live in New York? They live in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn. This is a neighborhood that's in the process of change during the main course of the story. There's a lot of gentrification going on. Property values are going up, and that means property taxes are going up, and that people are being priced out of their own homes. Yeah, exactly. And I put gentrification in here just as another character on its own, but I don't spend too much time on it. I discuss it here and there so that you feel it and you know that it's going on. And I've read some reviews or some readers wish that I had I'd included more and doted on a little bit more. But listen, when I finished this first draft, it was 168,000 words. Oh, and that's over 500 pages. And now it's around 110,000. So I couldn't get to everything. And I, I also thought that it was unnecessary in a way because it's there. It's lurking. And if you're paying attention to the narrative and the changes that take place in the neighborhood, then it'll be obvious that Bed-Stuy and, and Brooklyn overall is changing. And if you had to tease out every cultural thing that matters to us in this world during the course of the novel to address every single thing, it would have been way longer than that 500 pages. Yeah, most definitely. And, and right now, you know, people say, I hit on so much in the novel. 
And for some of them, they believe that I hit on all of it expertly. Other people are like, hey, you know, maybe, maybe you were juggling too much. But again, it just comes down to the reader. I was very ambitious with this novel. I gave myself the freedom to touch on any topics that came to mind. But then in the process of editing it, I had to reel it in. And that had to do with cutting whole characters out, cutting whole subplots out that I found to be interesting initially, but wouldn't ultimately serve the reader in the story, as well as many key scenes or scenes that I thought were key initially between characters. So yeah, I, I couldn't get to it all. And I don't think that the novel would be as well received as it is if I tried, right? I, mean, I wasn't writing an encyclopedia. Now, when you were pitching your work to an agent and then editors, how did that feel different from the sales work you yourself have done in the past? That's a great question. When I first came into this game of publishing, I was trying to rely more on my personality and my sales acumen than the writing. And with two manuscripts that I had written not going anywhere, no offer of representation, no book deal, I was quickly humbled and realized that the writing is what matters most. But what's also incredibly important is you being able to present your writing in a way that it can be received in the most impactful manner. So when it came time to pitch Black Buck, I didn't hold back in my pitch. I injected a lot of energy. I made sure to clearly state the why. Why did I write this book? Why was I the person to write this book? And fortunately, it came through. I had multiple offers from agents. And then with my own sales background and, and after, you know, we worked on the novel, when I say we, I mean my agent and I, we then transferred that same energy into going on sub or on submission for people who aren't in the know to editors. And it was received with the same type of energy. And it's not like everyone wanted it. We definitely got rejections from editors. But on the whole, the initial response that we got and conversations that I had were great and really showed me that people were understanding what I was trying to do with this book. What subtle sales techniques are you using on me during the course of this interview? Well, none really. I mean, I'm listening. That's, that's the main one. I'm listening. I'm getting a feel for your tone. I'm getting a feel for where you get excited when you bring up something about the book. And through me listening, I can just even subconsciously, I believe, just better achieve a rhythm with you in this conversation. But I'm not, I'm not doing any <laughs> overt psychology or anything or trying to tell you the answers that you want to hear. I try to turn that off as much as possible. Okay, I appreciate that. So let's meet a few more people who are important in Darren's life. And that's mm -hmm. Mr. Percy Rawlings, lives in the brownstone that his mother owns. Yeah, Mr. Rawlings. <laughs> there are a few characters who provide comic relief, at least in certain points in the book. And Mr. Rawlings is one of them. He is, yeah, 70, 71-year-old man. He's lived in the brownstone before Darren was born and when his mother was even a child. Mr. Rawlings was friends with Ma, Ma's parents, and he becomes to Darren like a grandfather. I'm not going to say a father figure, um, but more so like a grandfather. And he is hilarious. He is wise. He is at times stubborn, but he is also very caring and provides Darren necessary counsel um, when Darren was having a tough time at the company of someone. And if Mr. Rawlings is more grandfatherly, then Wally Cat down the street is more avuncular. Yeah, man, Wally Cat, he's an older gentleman as well, you know, in his late 50s, grew up with Darren's mother, who we know as Ma. Wally Cat sits on a crate. I'm not going to give his whole bio for listeners who haven't read the book, but he is extremely interesting, also funny, like Mr. Rawlings, but a little bit more hard-hitting and blunt with Darren about what he believes Darren needs to do in terms of re-engineering his mindset 
to succeed in that world of startups and sales, or, or as Wallycat sometimes calls it, the WWW, the World Wide Web. Wallycat is just a great guy. And when Darren, right, this isn't a spoiler, when Darren loses himself in a way and then encounters Wallycat later in the book, Wallycat proves the type of person that he is by letting Darren know that rarely in life have we ever gone too far astray to return back to who we were and who we need to be. Even though he hasn't been ambitious in his professional life, in his personal life, he has managed to make a romantic connection with Soraya. Yeah, Soraya is Darren's longtime girlfriend. He met her when she emigrated to America with her parents from Yemen. Soraya, life hasn't been all cookies and buttercups for her. She has had some tragedies, but again, I'm not going to spoil it for the readers. But just like everyone else in bed the people that we've discussed, Mr. Rawlings, Ma, Wally Cat, and I'm sure that we're going to discuss his best friend, you know, shortly. She loves him unconditionally. And like Ma, she believes that Darren has unfulfilled potential and she wants to see him fulfill his potential. And she's what many of us would call a ride or die chick, a ride or die partner, in that she's there for Darren whenever he needs him, but she'll also not hesitate to hit him with the real upside of his head whenever she believes he needs to hear it. You mentioned his best friend, Jason. They've known each other since they were kids, but they have definitely taken different paths once they got out of school. Yeah, Jason is Darren's best friend. Again, has known him since he was a young guy. Someone was trying to steal his backpack, and and Jason prevented the theft from happening and then hit Darren with some knowledge. Young Darren and a young Jason, but who is is wise, which is just indicative of his overall personality, saying that just because someone wants what you have doesn't mean that they need to steal it. And Jason, though, is on the corner where we see Darren hustling at Starbucks and then eventually at this startup called Someone. And for the listeners, if I didn't spell it out, it's S-U-M-W-U-N. Jason's on the corner and he is doing some things that he feels are necessary to his own survival and the survival of his family. But as you said, Stephen, just very different than Darren's own path. And we see how their past and their friendship diverges and then down the line, you know, reconnect. You can say both of them had their own parts in the friendship becoming estranged because I think both of them handled it badly. Yeah, exactly. And Darren, you know, eventually takes on an attitude that is a bit elitist and Jason's hurt. And because he's hurt, he lashes out in the ways that he thought were appropriate. So you're definitely right. They both play a role in the fraying of their relationship and they also both play a role when it comes back together. Now, you mentioned him early on, Rhett Daniels. He is a very kind of assertive, I guess will be the nice word, as, as opposed to aggressive, kind of go-getter type. And he comes into Darren's Starbucks frequently. Darren decides to pitch him on a different drink for this day for some reason. Yeah, we don't really know why. I mean, there's like a hint based on what happens beforehand. And an older Darren, while writing the book, touches on it. But for the most part, Darren, in the moment, doesn't know why but he sells Rhett on a different drink. And Rhett, as you said, is this smooth, good-looking white guy. He, he is the CEO of a startup called Someone, which is located on the 36th floor of the same building where the Starbucks is located. The Starbucks is on the first floor. And Rhett comes in all the time, but Darren sells him on this different drink. And in Darren, Rhett sees a reflection of himself, perhaps a younger, more courageous, more intelligent self. But he also looks at Darren as a way to help his company, Someone, get ahead. And then Rhett, Darren subconsciously believes, again, I say subconsciously because this isn't at the forefront of his mind during this exchange when Darren sells him on a new drink. But in Rhett, 
Darren subconsciously sees someone who can help him activate that latent but enormous potential that his mother and that his girlfriend Soraya believes that he has. And Rhett also, in a way, serves as the older brother that Darren never had. He is physically affectionate. He is emotionally supportive. And beyond all else, he truly believes that Darren is destined for greatness. So, you know, listener, put yourself in Darren's scenario, especially when you're offered $65,000 compared to the 19000 that you were making at Starbucks. It's more than your mother has ever made. And you have the ability to capitalize on what you believe your, your talents are. It's hard not to fall into that. Rhett asks Darren to call him, gives him a card. It's like he's not expecting opportunity to knock. He seems to be waiting for an engraved invitation. Yeah, Darren, like many people in the traditional hero's journey, is reluctant at first, right? He doesn't trust Rhett. He doesn't know why Rhett has chosen him. And he's not really even that interested because going back to earlier in the conversation, he's comfortable. He's never had to ask himself, why am I here? He's never really been tested. He was valedictorian at a top public high school, and now he's a shift supervisor. And there's nothing wrong with being a shift supervisor, but for someone like Darren, it's playing it safe. So when Rhett comes to him, Darren is wary. And then eventually, he's pushed into this world of someone through an interaction with a young man named Clyde who works at the organization. And Darren wants to rise to the occasion. So that's how he eventually starts to work there. And Clyde is the head of sales, and he is every bit as condescending and sneering and waspy like those jerks from John Hughes movies. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Clyde looks at Darren as no more than a nuisance. He doesn't understand what Rhett really sees in him other than, you know, a potential diversity hire. And Clyde is doing his best to make someone inhospitable to Darren. When he realized that he basically had to hire Darren because Darren did prove competent, or at least with some fire, during the interview. Clyde believes that Darren would be a, a nice challenge for him. So he hires him, and then he does his absolute most to get Darren to quit or to find a reason to really fire Darren. And I don't want to say too much more to spoil it, but we see them going head to head to head to head to head again and again and again. Well, and you said he's a diversity hire. He's not a diversity. He is the diversity hire because exactly. it is a very white company. Exactly right. He is the token black person, not just black man, but the token black person in the organization of someone. And just touching on Clyde again, we look at Clyde. You can see him on the face as somewhat of a stereotype. But with all of these characters, if I dangle a stereotype in front of you, I'm going to flip it on its head as well. Uh, maybe not a few pages later, but at least a couple chapters, and definitely by the next part. With someone like Clyde, he is waspy, he is aggressive, he is hostile, but he is also loving. He does have love for the other people at someone who he manages. He has love for Rhett, and we see those soft parts of him in certain moments of the narrative. But it's almost kind of like a scene in a fraternity comedy. The new hires get nicknames, and mm -hmm. Darren's is personal and political all at once. Yeah, so Darren is initially given the nickname of Buck because he used to work at Starbucks and Clyde doesn't want to call him Starbucks. And it's also, as you said, it pertains to the historical connotation of the black Buck being the enslaved man who the enslavers believed was untamed, unruly, and was going to burn down the plantation to the ground or from the inside out. And I chose that title not to be provocative or bombastic, even though I knew it would be, but more so because that's the energy that, that Darren is coming with in this novel, at least towards the end. He's not looking to physically or literally burn down these corporations. 
but he is burning down what they symbolize. And it's somewhat of a slash and burn technique, Stephen, where you know you have to burn it down in order to build forward and build up. Throughout the course of the book, there's a running gag that goes on of these hopefully well-meaning, maybe not, white people who say he resembles a black celebrity. And then there's a whole list of black celebrities whom don't resemble each other in the slightest. Exactly. It starts out with MLK, then it goes to Malcolm X, then it goes to Sidney Poitier, then it goes to Dave Chappelle, hits a few other places, goes to Drake. I almost brought in Oprah just to really, <laughs> just to really play up the farce. But that was one of the moments when I said, all right, cool it, man. Pull it back a little bit because you don't want this to be so absurd that it obscures the truth that you are looking to reveal. And with that gag, there are a few, more than a few actually, moments like that in the book where at first you're like, this is funny. This is really funny. But by the end, you're like, wow, is this real? Does this actually happen to people? And that is a part of my life that I included, right? I've been called everything from Malcolm X to Kid Cudi to Bruno Mars to a variety of different people, Stephen, who do not resemble each other at all. So that was definitely me dangling this humorous moment to then reveal the potential horror of what it's like to be the only one, of what it's like to be the diversity hire or the resident other, as I sometimes call it. Do you want to hear what this uh, well-meaning white person has to say? I'd love to. Not because of your face, but because of your hairstyle and the glasses and then the story being set in Bed-Stuy. I was yeah. thinking of bugging out Giancarlo Esposito <laughs> from Do the Right Thing. Really? <laughs> yeah. Just just because the glasses and the hair, not I, I don't see any other resemblance in your faces at all, but just just the look. Oh man, I mean John Carlos Esposito, I, I love being I love being connected to him. He was a he was a badass MF in uh Breaking Bad. Oh yeah, Gustavo Fring. Yeah, that's right. And he was in the movie Fresh. I love that movie. Well he was in a, a show that only lasted like a half a season called uh Bakersfield P D. I've never seen it. But it's on Fox, and he played, a, I think, an L.A. cop that went up to Bakersfield, and he was a by-the-books professional detective, and he was dealing with all these kind of yokels and rednecks, and it was, it was a really interesting show. But it got canceled? Yeah, it only lasted, I think, probably 12, 13 episodes. And that's just how it goes. Let me ask you a question. When you read mm -hmm. the book, did you think that it could be on, uh, on the screen? I definitely could. Definitely could. People have been doing enough experimentation in movies recently that I think you could actually throw up a graphic on the screen with those lessons. I've seen quite a few movies recently, you know, going back to Fight Club. Oh, Fight Club? Yeah, yeah, where they threw up all the Ikea stuff and everything on the screen. Yeah. If you could throw up those quotes and, you know, go ding and say, you know, this is something you're supposed to learn. And, you know, I think that would work really well. Of course, any book, when you say screen, I would probably go more for television because I think there's enough there at least to get one season out of this, if not several. I'm not going to get into all of it, but all I'm going to say is you're spot on about people having discussed their own graphic in a piece for the screen. And you're also on the money about this being viewed as a television series more than a film. What would also be great is when one of these white people say who uh, Darren looks like to throw up a picture of that person beside them to show how completely ridiculous it is. Steven, on the money again. That's all I'm going to say. On the money. <laughs> now, Darren Vender, that name's pretty on the nose. Mm -hmm. And Vender, he's selling. But with Rhett Daniels, this is going to be probably way off the mark. But like the most famous Rhett in American popular culture is Rhett Butler from Gone with the Wind. Mm. And then Daniels, I went, well, Lee Daniels made the movie The Butler, and so oh it's a combination God. of Lee Daniels and Rhett Butler, and there you go. Oh, my God. Okay. I did not 
think about that whatsoever. But this is the second time that someone has made a connection that I love and that I find extremely interesting. And then two things I want to say that one is that I really, I really don't know how much I can get into. Let me just say I've met Lee Daniels. Let me just say that. I've met Lee Daniels as a byproduct of me having written this book. That's all I'm going to say there. Mm-hmm. The second thing is that with the name Darren Vender, that was a, a, extremely intentional. Vender, as many people know, means to sell in Spanish. That was on purpose or just the English word vendor. But someone else said, Mateo, I don't know if this is a stretch, but Darren Vender, Darth Vader, <laughs> his move to the dark side. Uh. I said, Stuart, I did not come up with that, but I like that. I'm running with it. So I'm going to do the same here with Rhett Daniels. I would say, you know, the beginning of the story has a familiar arc. A young man becomes successful, becomes alienated from his family and lifelong friends. But at a point, this book takes off onto its own thing, and I did not see that coming. Yeah. Some people say, and I would most definitely agree, that there are perhaps three books in this one book. It takes so many different turns, sometimes page to page, most definitely part to part. And by the end, you're thrown into a thriller. And that was unintentional on my part. I didn't have everything mapped out when I wrote the author's note. I knew the big twist, and I had to figure out how to get us there. But towards writing the final part, I said, wow, this is turning into somewhat of a thriller. How do I play this up? And it was really interesting for me, and, and it was reengaging me in the process of writing the book as well to have it take that turn. And I'm just happy that I haven't been entrenched in the so-called standards of writing a novel or the standards of literature. I've read some of the the so-called classics, but I don't have my MFA. I didn't go to school for writing. So whether it came to breaking the fourth wall um, with the asides to readers or having the book just completely change its tone towards the end, I'm happy that I was able to give myself that freedom because I think it made it ultimately more interesting or it makes it more interesting for the readers. It made me think a bit of Goodwill Hunting and the fact Mm. that when they wrote the screenplay originally, it was supposed to be a thriller, kind of a spy thing. And then it got dialed back to, you know, more of a a human story about a a working class kid who tries to achieve something in life. So it's funny that you went along the path that they had turned away from. I wasn't aware of that, but Goodwill Hunting is one of my favorite movies. So I'm also not surprised. And that's really wild to think that it could have been a thriller because <laughs> it's just so earnest and so human and a display of flawed characters. Not to say a thriller can't have that, but the story and the act in and of itself is just so gripping that to throw a whodunit or a thriller or anything in there would have been crazy. And I don't even know where Ben Affleck would have fit in there <laughs> because one of my favorite <laughs> scenes is when he, he plays Will at that meeting with Boeing or whomever, right? The NSA, I think. And he comes in with the suit and he, he starts negotiating for a higher salary. I'm just so happy that the movie was made in the way that it was. Well, and it would have been funny if uh, how do you like them apples would have been like an Arnold Schwarzenegger type catchphrase. Exactly. Or you just paid $150,000 for your education. I got it for $1.50 or, or, or free at the library. So early on in a lot of writers' careers, a lot of biographical details will make it their ways into the book. There are some superficial similarities between you and Darren. What ways are you different from him? Oh, we're different in terms of our trajectory. I have always been an ambitious person. I worked at a startup. When I got in, I was an intern, but I knew that I wanted to rise as quickly as possible. And that is what happened. So I was an intern. And then a few months later, 
I became the community manager slash social media manager. And then a handful of months later, I was tapped to start the sales team with our CEO. And from there, within two or so years, the sales team grew from myself to 90 people. And I went from being the first hire to a director managing 30 people. So I've always been ambitious. I've always wanted to rise. Another way is, is biographical, right? I grew up in a two-parent household. I'm originally from Long Island, even though I have lived in Bed-Stuy a couple times, actually down the street from those four corners where a lot of the narrative takes place in Bed-Stuy. I lived down that street when I was 21 and I was on the so-called come up in that world of startup. There are cosmetic differences between Darren and myself. There are differences in the things that we do and the way that we think. But you are right, there are many similarities in terms of us being thrown into a world unlike anything we've experienced before and in a way losing ourselves and pushing our families and our families and closest friends away because we thought that they just didn't understand that I was part of a group or we were part of a group that were the chosen ones. So there are similarities, but there are also many differences. When I was reading the book early on and Darren is getting to the point of buy-in to the someone and someone is a service. It's kind of like life coaching plus counseling. It's kind of in a gray area in between. Would you say that's? Yeah, I've never heard anyone discuss it as life coaching, but I mean, I think that a lot of therapy is that as well. So yeah, it's most definitely. And just kind of the process of buy-in and kind of the procedures they use, breaking him down a bit, it just felt kind of cult-like. And then with everything that's going on politically, last week being the riot attempted coup in Washington, D.C., it just felt some kind of strange resonances in that process that he was going through. You hit the nail on the head. It is psychological warfare in breaking someone down in order to rebuild them as a constituent of your cult. Because these organizations, and not just startups, it's the same in corporate America, it's the same in in sports, it's the same in, I believe, any institution where a group is its focal point. And what I'm referring to is the discussion of culture. What is our culture, right? What is the Lakers' culture? Apple's culture? What is (laughs) WIPL's culture? But there's a fine line between cult and culture, and we see that that line blurred. But Darren doesn't come in, as you said, as a believer. He has to be broken down first, and then he has to be shown the light in the church that is someone. And it's gradual. It's not one thing, but it's many things. And I've seen this play out in reality many, many, many times. You, you may, might have as well, right? Whether, whether it's someone being like, ah, I don't like that type of food. And then all of a sudden they taste it or they're, they're pushed to take a bite and then they're screaming from the rooftops about this plate, right? That's just a random example. I'm sure that other people, if you're listening, you, you can think of some on your own. But we see that happen time and time again in reality. And if we want to bring it to last week, we know that QAnon and the Proud Boys and all of these people, there is a process of radicalization. And that plays into social media, that plays into forums. No one is born a radical right? They have to become one. And the same thing happens in terms of Darren becoming a someoneer, as they refer to the employees at the startup. Early on, you mentioned a couple of manuscripts you had before Black Buck. What do you think changed in your writing and your approach that allowed this one to break through and be published? Well, I became more intentional about what I was writing. I wasn't trying to pander to the industry as much. I didn't care about being buddy-buddy with the who's who as much as I did when I first came in. I realized that I couldn't rely on my personality and my sales or business background 
to make this happen. I had to focus on the writing and I couldn't write with fear in my mind. I had to, as Stephen King said, not come to the page lightly. And it was after having a series of conversations with myself that I also had a very, very, very firm foundation of who I was writing this book for, first myself, and then black and brown people in the workplace who have been the resident other. I had a firm foundation of how I wanted to write it, meaning in a very engaging and fun and sometimes too far voice that pushes the envelope in a way that will make people uncomfortable. And I had a firm foundation in that I was going to write this book in a way that resonated with myself, resonated with the people I wanted to read, and also, very importantly, resonate with the nation that we live in today. Beyond possibility of Black Buck seeing the screen, do you have anything in the works right now? Yeah, I'm working on another book. I have many ideas for books, but I got to take it one step at a time. And what I'm realizing is that promoing for Black Buck is a full-time job, so I'm just trying to give myself that grace and also just feel the real gratitude that I have for people who are reading this book and enjoying it and feeling less alone or seeing themselves reflected in it because of what I wrote. And for people out there who are kind of struggling with work-life balance, with a lot of people working from home now, if they're so lucky to, kind of expected to be almost on call 24-7, you know, what kind of advice do you have people to kind of like be able to maintain some sense of balance in their lives? Set boundaries ruthlessly. Do not be afraid to set boundaries. Whether that looks like putting an out-of-virtual office responder on once you're really off the clock, and taking it off only once you're back on the next day, or it's not responding to texts or phone calls, because I think that some managers or bosses feel as though anything goes nowadays, and they can just text you on a deliverable when it's really not that time sensitive. But I think what's most important is writing down the type of work-life balance that you want to have in this world where lines are blurred, and living into that every day and making sure that you are as healthy as possible because it's so easy being in lockdown, not being able to go eat in places or not being able to enjoy ourselves in the ways that we did before, whether that means watching sports or going to the movies. It's so important for us to take care of our emotional health, mental health, and in some cases, spiritual health first before we can even be that employee, right? We're people first. Mateo, thank you again so much for coming on Book Talk and sharing Black Buck with us. It's been a pleasure and much luck on the uh, virtual tour. Thank you so much for having me, Stephen. It's also been a pleasure. Take care. Thank you. Mateo Ascurapur is the author of the novel Black Buck, which is published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. I'm Stephen Usri, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is recorded in the studios of WYPL in Memphis, Tennessee. If you have any questions or comments, you can email us at wyplfm at gmail.com or write to us at Book Talk, care of WYPL, 3030 Poplar Avenue, Memphis, Tennessee, 38111, or call us at 901-415-2752. This recording of Book Talk is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 License for the United States. You are free to share, copy, distribute, or display and perform this work, but there are restrictions. Nothing in this license impairs or restricts WYPL's moral rights. Thank you for listening to Book Talk.